Uh, Thanksgiving has come and gone. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about ours. Uh, I am third string when it comes to cooking at our house. My wife, Eleanor, is first string. She does an excellent job. My son, Ben, is kind of this fledgling chef, uh, loves to figure out things from YouTube videos and enjoys doing it. So for the past few, past few years, he's been doing uh, Thanksgiving dinner for us. Uh, but he's got this job where he has to work on certain uh, uh, holidays. Uh, my wife is uh, the director of an organization called Echo, and they just do an incredible job serving uh, the needy in our community. And so they handed out like eight, almost 800 meals to families in our community on Thursday morning. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. And, uh, uh, but that takes a lot of effort and preparation, and certainly the execution of it is uh, most of Thanksgiving morning. So, like I said, third string, I was up this year for Thanksgiving dinner. Uh, yeah, I, I should have issued like a church-wide prayer request for that. But uh, uh, I'm here, I'm pleased to tell you it went okay. Uh, I didn't burn anything. Uh, the corn pudding tasted like corn pudding, at least to me. Uh, the turkey was pretty good, and uh, the best part of it is that as, as the one who is responsible for cooking, I cooked way too much food. Is anybody that way? Like, why don't we eat more turkey? Does anybody know why we only basically haul turkey out once a year? It's pretty good. It's kind of cheap. It just takes a lot of preparation. So I went for it, big old bird, cooked double the amounts of everything else that we needed. Why? Here's why. Because the best part of Thanksgiving is the leftovers. Can I get an amen? That's, I don't know if that's in the Bible anywhere. I'm sure it's not. Uh, but uh, in my opinion, uh, a microwave Thanksgiving meal the next day is better than the actual meal itself. That's just me. And so uh, as part of this overcooking, there was a, 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 a conjoined or, a, or a, a, an adjoining responsibility. Uh, if, if we were going to be able to store everything that I cooked and we did not eat, guess what needed to be cleaned out? The fridge. Who's gone through the fridge clean out recently? Anybody done that? Has anybody found something you're like, oh, has anybody, have you actually said that word when you found something in your fridge? Oh, that's from March, right? Like, uh, uh, it's like a science project in there. But we cleaned everything out, and my fridge is full of leftovers. Uh, I'm grateful for that. I'm looking forward to having some when I get home. Um, uh, yesterday is uh, another part of our Thanksgiving tradition. Uh, we hauled out the Christmas stuff. Anybody else do that on Thanksgiving weekend? Yeah, it comes down from the attic. Um, and this is another part of that process uh, that has to take place before the tree and all the trimmings can go up. We gotta move furniture around in my, my main room. Does anybody else have to do that when you pull stuff out? There's not a room for the tree otherwise or all these other things. And so my, my sons and I spent yesterday morning basically throwing sofas and everything around our room uh, trying to make room uh, for, for all of our Christmas stuff. You'll be glad to know it's up, it looks wonderful. Uh, but this is kind of where I'm heading today uh, with our thinking as we enter into 1 Samuel chapter 4 together and the story told there. Um, it's basically this, old things need to be pushed aside and removed so that new things can come into play. For the new things that need to happen in life, old things uh, must go. The Christian experience is kind of wrapped up with this statement in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, a verse that's often quoted by pastors like me in sermons. It says this, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a, say it with me, new creation. That's what happens when we put our faith in Jesus. We are made new. Uh, the old, who we were before him, has passed away, and behold, the new has come. For new things to happen in life, the old 
must go. It's the truth about us if we're going to follow Jesus as individuals. It's the truth about us as the church if we're going to continue to progress and be useful in the world that we have been uh, sent to serve. Um, uh, we uh, are constantly changing and updating. Maybe you walked in today, and it's very nice. Decor is cool for Christmas and stuff like that. People far more talented than me are responsible for that around here. We can all be grateful for that. If I was in charge of decor, everybody... Wow. Anyway, uh, but, but we built this lid over here. Has anybody uh, enjoyed the lid? If you're kind of new to our church, we just put this roof over the space between our two buildings, and it's just life-giving. It's just this amazing spot. All of these things are ideas that come up after the fact. We start with the original, and we're like, hey, this could be better. Let's throw a roof up over that kind of stuff. So those are kind of the more benign improvements, but sometimes there has to be complete overhauls. Like in a church, uh, sometimes it's just time for change. We... Uh, Six years ago, got involved with a church just north of here called First Baptist Church of Mango. And in the six years that we've been involved with them, they've gone through quite a bit of change. Um, thankfully, some of the changes are super positive. There's like 10 times, almost 12 times more um, people going to that church now than when we started. Yeah, God, for that, right? But that church no longer exists where it used to exist. Its address has changed. We sold the property and we're able to buy uh, just as much and actually more property, just a few uh, you know, uh, doors down and, and a new bit newer building and, and all kinds of things has changed, have changed as a result of us joining together in ministry. But this is what's necessary. In fact, I've been your pastor for 18 years now. I'm in my 19th year. There's going to come a time when I'm not your pastor anymore, not because I'm not looking you know, to do that anytime soon or anything like that, but it's just how things are going to happen. It's how things have to happen so that the work of God can continue to move forward. Old things, older things, have to move on so that newer things can take their place. It's natural. It's right. It's how things get done. What's this got to do with this guy Samuel that we've been studying? Well, he's the new thing that God wants to do at this time uh, if his story in, in the history of Israel. If you've been with us since we started studying uh, Samuel's story, he's a miracle baby. Uh, his mom, Hannah, had been praying, for a been praying for a child for years and years and years. And finally, uh, God uh, granted her petition, and she was um, given a son. She named him Samuel. And as part of uh, her prayer, she promised to uh, commit Samuel to the work of God at an early age and did so. She, she weaned him and raised him, probably until he was like four or five years old, and then took him to the temple and, and basically turned him over to the people who served God there. Uh, the guy in charge was a high priest. His name was Eli. And, and, and Samuel became his you know, youngest intern. He became his charge and was trained to be a Levite in the priestly tribe. Uh, he grew up and God started speaking to him. He was his, uh, God's plan for this new thing that God was going to do in the, the story of Israel. He, uh, he actually used Samuel to inform his boss, Eli, of the changes that were to come. If you were listening as Tom was preaching them, they weren't happy uh, you know, news. It wasn't a good thing that Samuel was given to share with Eli. Uh, God was going to depose, to set aside Eli, his sons, who had been wicked in serving as priests. Uh, he was going to basically go in a different direction, and they were going to be taken uh, out of the play. Uh, we finished last week, as Tom uh, did such a great job preaching, uh, in the last part of 1 Samuel, chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 3. It says, Samuel grew, verse 19, and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. He, he was God's voice. God spoke through him, and what he said 
was what God intended for Israel. Uh, in the next verse, it tells us that all of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, that means from the north of Israel to the south of Israel, from, from Maine to Key West, everybody, everywhere understood that Samuel was established as the prophet of the Lord, and the Lord uh, appeared again at Shiloh. What that means is, is that things were going on in the nation of Israel on, uh, on behalf of the Lord or, or in, 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 in hopes of worshiping the Lord, but because Eli and his sons had been so wicked and had been so poor as leaders, uh, there had been uh, a disappearance, if you will, of the Lord. His blessing had not been upon Shiloh, uh, this place, this center of his worship, but the Lord appeared again through Samuel and through the leadership of Samuel at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And the word at verse one of Samuel came to all of Israel. The word of the Lord through Samuel came to Israel. Sam was God's new thing. Uh, he was gonna, from then on, in this period of Israel's history, be the voice of God to Israel. Eli and his sons were the old thing. They had to go so that the new thing of God come into place. It's, it's, I got two questions for you today as we, as we preach through this text. Just two things I want you to consider. The first one, let me pop it on you right now. Even as we've talked about old things being set aside so that new things can come. Here's my question to us today. What in our lives, what in your life needs to go so God can do a new thing with you? What's going on, people? What's happening in your life? that could be hindering the things that God wants to bring about as you seek to follow him and honor him with what he's given you. It's right for us to say, as Paul told us in his letter to the Corinthians, that when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are instantly made new. That is wholly true and completely true, but Paul tells us in other parts of his writings that even though we are positionally new in Christ, we have this tendency to head back to the old, who we were before we met him, and we glom on to the things that aren't him. That's why he tells uh, the Corinthians in another letter, hey, listen, or excuse me, Romans, he tells the Romans, different church, in another letter, hey, don't conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's this continual waking up each day and saying, hey, God, don't let me go back to the old me. Help me to stay in the new me and lead me into greater expressions of this new life that I have with you so that I can honor you the best that I can. We all have old man tendencies, things that we hang on to or things that hang on to us from the life that we lived before we met Christ. Now, some of us choose to harbor the harmful things that go against God and his will, just blatantly choose sin over him. I, I put it this way a lot of times. Anybody seen me do this before? You have. Uh, I do this a lot. People you know, in, in their walk with Christ love to emphasize the parts of them that are surrendered to him. I make it almost every Sunday, and if I'm not here, I watch online. I serve in the youth group, and you got to know that's a service, right, or whatever they say. And, and I do all these things. I even started giving recently. Mark made a big fuss about that, and so I started giving. I do all these things for God. I'm super surrendered. Just let's not talk about this because this is the part of me that's for me. This is my thing. I know it's wrong. I know it's not best, but it's what I have, and this is how I make up for it, all of this right here. If that's you, and from time to time it's all of us, you're harboring the harmful, and it's holding you back from the new things that God wants to do 
in your life? Can you admit that, identify that, confess that, and move away from that? For some of us, it's not the harmful. It's not the blatant wrong that we choose to hide and de-emphasize. Sometimes it's the benign. It's the good things that we make ultimate. I just got done before uh, we got back to preaching 1 Samuel talking about being generous. And I said it was something I wanted for you and not from you. I want everybody to uh, experience the freedom of uh, not having the things that you have have you, but God having you and having the things that he's given to you for you to steward on his behalf. It's a different kind of mentality. The life lived in generosity is different from the life lived hoarding in fear. Uh, Many of you took me to heart. Can I just report? In the three weeks that uh, preceded me starting to preach about generosity, uh, that was basically the end of October, the three weeks that ended October. In the three weeks since then that began November, Giving at Baylife Church went up 60%. Oh, that's, yes, yay. But then the other side of me says, what took, where was that? What took us so long? And I know we got to talk about it sometimes, but overall I'm grateful, obviously, that people, you know, I'm trusting by the prompting of the Spirit, have understood, hey man, maybe I shouldn't be so into this stuff, which isn't patently wrong, it's not Entirely bad to have things, but maybe those things shouldn't have me as much as God has me, and I should be generous with what he gives. Hmm. Sometimes, it's not just us being a little too precious with benign things. Sometimes it's just us being ignorant of the things that are in our lives. We just haven't run a check. Eleanor and I decided to kind of redo a a room as part of what she wants for her birthday and Christmas. uh, it was a December birthday. Anyway, uh, and, and so one of the rooms in our house is going to change. It happens from time to time, right? And so she wants to repurpose it for like, you know, some of her creative stuff. And, and so everything that's in that room, it's coming out. And everything that we want to go in is going in. <clears throat> but there's this big old closet in that room. Has anybody opened one of those big old closets that you rarely go in after a long time? And you're like, huh, didn't know we owned that. Anybody been there? Look at all this stuff that we just jammed in here. Many times it's our garage. We just kind of shove stuff in. Um, I'm looking forward to finding out what we got in there. You know, and just seeing what we haven't used for months and maybe years and uh, having the conversations as to what we're going to do with it since it hasn't been a part of life. Anyway, uh, a lot of times where there's willful this, sometimes there's just unbeknownst to us this. We're doing this, out, but we just haven't run a check on the stuff that can kind of sneak into life and keep us from God's very best. What, what in your life and in my life needs to go so that God can do a new thing with us in this season that we find ourselves in? Um, great question to ask, where do we go from here? Well, we're gonna ask God to show us what those things might be right now. Here's what we're gonna do, it's gonna be a little active for you. If you have a phone that has a notes app on it, maybe you wanna take that out right now. Uh, you can just kind of have it ready in case the Holy Spirit speaks to you what this thing might be. I'm going to give us just like a few seconds to pray. Is that cool? doesn't matter if it is. It's what's going to happen. Uh, and you're just going to have an opportunity to personally ask God uh, what uh, another writer of the Bible asked. Lord, uh, see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way that's everlasting. Hey, God, just show me. Is there anything in me that's old, that's not you, that needs to go so that you can do the new things that you want to do with me. I'm just going to give us a second, see if God says something, then I'll tell you what to do 
if and when he does. Everybody ready? Let's pray. Amen. Now, some of you don't have anything written down yet. I'm going to give you permission while I'm talking to continue to listen to God. And if he gives you something that needs to go so that he can do some new things in you, write it down, even while I'm talking. Cool? Some of you, you didn't even need the prayer. You knew when I started talking about the things that need to go exactly what your thing was, whether it was the blatant, harmful thing that you're holding on to or the benign thing that you're just kind of letting uh, have a greater spot in life than it should. Or, or maybe you even like, oh, I totally know what's in my closet <laughs> that needs to, to not be there. Some of you knew immediately. But regardless, when God reveals, I'm going to just give you what you need to do. When God reveals to you the old that needs to go, a couple things need to happen. First of all, personally. You confess that as being something that he does not want and you repent of it. That means, God, give me the strength to go the other way. In your quest for repentance, in going a different direction from where you've gone in this old thing that was not what God wants into this new thing that is what God wants, you're going to need help. That's why we're here. If you're in a life group, if you're in a marriage, if you're in a friendship with someone who is a fellow believer, Confess those things to them. I need this to change in me. Can you help me? Pray with me. Hold me accountable to these changes. And together, with God's help primarily and with the help of his children secondarily, we move away from what was old and into what is new. It's just how it works. It's how it's always worked. It's how it will work with whatever you've written down. I'm in many, you know, kind of discipling relationships. One, per, uh, one specific one right now is revolving around a guy who wants to be free of the things that you can access readily on the internet. Does everybody know what I'm talking about? It's the common uh, battle of most men in this era, especially the younger guys. We're two clicks away from just all kinds of illicit, horrible stuff, and this guy wants to be free of it. He's confessed it to himself, to his God, repented of it, and we've entered into this relationship where every day he texts me how he did. In most of the days, by God's grace, clean slate. On the days where there's slip-ups, he, he flagellates himself, flogs himself for those things, confesses them again to me and to God, and we text each other the prayers that are going to lead us into the greater freedoms that he desires. It's how this has worked for 2,000 years, except we didn't have cell phones way back in the day. Are you with me? And these are the ways that you move from what is old into what is new by the grace of God. So that's the first question. What in your life needs to go so God can do a new thing in you and with you? Deal with it. Identify and deal. By the grace of God, be free. Can I preach the rest of the text now? One more question. We'll go home. The story unfolds as... The first verse in First uh, Samuel chapter four continues. Uh, it unfolds with the actual account of what has been predicted through a, an unnamed prophet in chapter two and through Samuel himself in a conversation with Eli. Here's how things are going to end for you and your household. Not good. <laughs> uh, God's gonna deal with your sons. God's gonna deal with you. And in chapter four, we see how both occur. 
as it continues here in verse one, uh, it says, now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines and they encamped at a place called Ebenezer. Uh, Ebenezer is the Hebrew words, Eben and Ezer, meaning stone of help. Uh, it'll be a bigger player in the story as we move through 1 Samuel. Uh, they, they encamped at Ebenezer and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. I love uh, drawing maps on my belly. If you've been here before, you've seen me do it. So one more time real quick. Mediterranean Sea, Sea of Galilee, which is really a lake. I was just there, right? It's kind of smaller than you think, but it's this you know, uh, natural, uh, not salt water, body of water that flows uh, into the Jordan River and it goes down to the Dead Sea. Just, just to, the, to the west of the Dead Sea is Jerusalem. All right? And just to the further west of that is this place called Shiloh, where most of the story of Samuel takes place. Uh, Shiloh, keep going west, uh, has this, uh, uh, this place called Ebenezer, and, and next to it is another little place called Aphek. And these are the places where the Philistines and the Israelites first face off. We've heard about them, if you've ever heard someone preach. Uh, they, they have lots of battles throughout the Old Testament, but this is their first showdown as two actual peoples. It's here in 1 Samuel chapter four. The Philistines, without going into a lot of stuff, Philistine comes from the same Hebrew word, word, root word as Palestine, which is what we hear these days. Uh, the Philistines were a sea people, and they kind of landed in the southwestern portion of modern-day Israel, just north of Egypt, and they were kind of working their way up the coast, uh, hoping to get closer to the fertile farmlands of, of the Jordan River Valley. That's where they could grow their crops best, and so they kept kind of going this way, and Israel kept trying to keep them uh, from taking their land. And so here they are. We don't know who started the fight, but it was inevitable. Uh, they were going to clash, and their first fight occurs here in 1 Samuel chapter 4. It says that uh, uh, the first fight did not go in Israel's favor. Look at verse 2. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines. They got their clock cleaned. Uh, to, the, to the tune of 4,000 men dying in the field of battle. Now, modern-day armies, we got actual, you know, and many of you serve in our uh, military, our armed forces. Thank you again for your service. But it wasn't like that back in those days. Uh, you were kind of like Minutemen, like from the Revolutionary War. You would just kind of be summoned from your farm, and you'd all meet at this designated place, and you'd fight the enemy together. Well, these farmers and, you know, just uh, regular run-of-the-mill Israelites all hang out and they go to fight the Philistines and 4,000 of them lose their lives in this effort. There's lots of widows, newly minted widows in Israel. Uh, lots of families uh, who don't have their father, their, their chief breadwinner winner, uh, anymore. And so uh, as Israel regroups in verse three, the elders, the generals, the governors, the leaders of Israel uh, kind of look at the tape like a football coach would. Well, let's see how we lost that one. And, uh, and they ask these questions, or this specific question, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? What an astute question, a theologically correct rendering of that query, right? They didn't ask, what did we do? They went straight to their theology and they said, hey, wait a minute, we just lost this, this, you know, this skirmish, this battle where 4,000 men died. What happened with God that he would allow us to be defeated by the Philistines? And if you know anything about Israel's history, they had this, this long tradition of God going before them in all their battles, from the time that they were emancipated from Egypt in the Exodus to their 40 years in the wilderness to Joshua's conquest 
of the promised land in, in that book. Uh, God went before them. The most famous one is probably Jericho. Who's heard about the Battle of Jericho, right? The walls were impenetrable. God makes the, uh, the armies of Israel walk around them once a day for six days and on the seventh day, how many times? Seven, that's right. Good, good, good going, church. And, and seven times, and then what they do? Blew some trumpets, screamed some, you know, screams, and the walls came a-tumbling down, right? Who's seen the veggie tales? Anyway, uh, <clears throat> that's how it worked. And Israel knew what their forefathers had done to win their fights. They had no business winning the battles that they found themselves in. But God had gone before them. God had sovereign, sovereignly appointed their victories. And so they knew when we lose, God's in the middle of it. Why has he allowed this to happen? So the elders asked the right question. They understood that God was sovereign. They knew that they should be wondering what they could do in their relationship with him and their dealings with him to bring about victory. It's how, it's how it would work. It's the only way it would work. So they asked the right question, but just like us, uh, they got the wrong answer. Anybody ever had the right thinking about God and still gone in the wrong direction with it? You are not alone. Uh, since humans have existed from the garden until now, can we all agree that the first humans had the right thinking about God but got duped and went in the wrong directions with the things that they knew about him? It's how we've been going since garden till now. And so here's these elders, these Israelite leaders, thinking, hey, how do we get God on board with us and give us this victory against these Philistines? They started in the right place and they ended up with the wrong answer. Here was their answer, verse three. Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. This is how we won in the past. We brought the box in, and some of you are like, the box? Yeah, the, the Ark of the Covenant was a box that was like basically two, three by feet, two feet by three feet, kind of, you know, something that's manageable. Uh, Steven Spielberg did a movie about it something like 40 years ago. Everybody remember that one? Raiders of the Lost Ark. Anyway, um, but it, it was an actual uh, uh, commanded by God uh, box that Israel was told to build to hold r reminders of his deliverance of them from Egypt. Uh, the tablets were in there, the showbread uh, that was part of the, the, the worship of the, the, the Jewish faith, uh, the staff of Aaron. There, there's, there's all these relics that were in there, and on the top was this lid that was called the mercy seat. Uh, it had two cherubim with their wings kind of pointed like this. If you ever look it up, Google it right now. You, you can do it right now. And, and they were kind of over this mercy seat, and the very presence of God was understood to be here in this box. So God had commanded all of Israel to carry this box into every battle that they had been in. It went before them any time they moved as a nation through the entire season of conquest. And, and so here's these Israelite elders. They're like, duh, we fought without the box. Who, whose idea was it to go to fight without the box? Someone go get the box. And that's what they decided to do. The box is the key. If we just have the box, there's no way we can lose. Now what's gonna unfold here is that indeed, they're going to lose. It's going to be worse than the first loss. And we're gonna see that it's rooted in their misunderstandings, their misappropriations about 
God. They, they had understood and asked the right questions, but they came up with the wrong answers, mostly because they just stayed on the surface and they didn't go deep. Anybody ever gotten themselves into trouble by just staying on the surface in some situation and not going to the deeper ills, right? Any relational problems arise from just staying on the surface with your husband or your wife and not really, because here's what we love to do. We love to do the surface thing, which is, it's your fault. We're great. Everybody hold up your finger, point it at me, say it's your fault. We're great at that as humans. It's not my fault, by the way. Why would you all say that? That's horrible. But we're great at pointing the finger. Danny, it's your fault. It's obviously your fault that we're not doing okay as friends. That's the quick, surfacey, I'm not responsible approach to life that humans are aces at. They're, we're really good at that. I'm perfect. I'm right. You're wrong. But what mom always told me is what? If you're pointing your finger at someone, there's three pointing back at you. And the right-minded person, the person who goes beyond the surface, probes deeper into their part into some situation and asks, what can I change? What needs to be different about me? What's, what's going on in the whole situation that I need to address instead of just this initial surface assessment? <laughs> uh, these elders of Israel remember Jericho. They remembered the ark going before uh, the army and the loud shouts, we're going to see them actually reprise that. There's going to be a lot of shouting here at uh, Ebenezer and, Sh- and, and Aphek. And they're going to do everything just like it had been done in Jericho without the same effect. It's because they weren't going beneath the surface and seeing what the real problem was. We've been talking about it since we started studying First Samuel. The real problem is they've got some lousy leaders, Eli and his sons. God's going to deal with them, but God is going to withhold his blessing. They will not find victory until these who have been um, making a a mockery of God and desecrating his, his worship are removed from the situation. The old has to go so that the new can take its place. Israel's elders were just, I don't know, dull to that. In fact, um, they tried to use God, um, and his ark, a God that they should have known, uh, they tried to use him instead of really understand him. So let me just kind of walk through this a little bit. Uh, as we've been talking, we often settle for quick answers rather than dig for the right one. Does everybody agree with me on that one? Yeah, we need not do that. And we're often like the elders of Israel. We tend to misappropriate our correct theology, our correct thinking about God into answers that are not about him at all. Like, like try this one on. Uh, God is all-powerful. Who believes that one? Omnipotent? Good. A lot of you do. God loves us. Who believes that one? We sing it all the time, right? Oh, he loves us. Oh, right? We sing that, right? Thank you. Put your hands down. Good. Okay. So God's all-powerful. God loves me, therefore, those are the theological truths that we can bank on, those are true. But our, our inference, our deduction is that if those things are true, then God wants me to be happy and he'll use all of his power because he loves me to make me happy. Not what the scriptures teach. God certainly wants us to be happy wherever possible, but he does not guarantee that his power and his love will be leveraged in our happiness, especially if the things that we see making us happier outside of his will for our lives. Are you with me? 
But I hear people do this all the time. I talked with a guy 10 years ago who told me that he knew that he knew that he knew that he was supposed to end the marriage that he was in with his Christian wife because God is all-powerful, God loves me, and he would not want me to be unhappy. And so he detailed out for me how this was his theology. This was his belief about God, that God wants me to be happy, and because he wants me to be happy, I know I'll be happiest if I'm not married to her. And he, he parachuted out of the relationship. And I wrote him back, and I told him to his face, you are lying to yourself. You are taking things that are true about God and manipulating those things to your advantage. And God may allow you to do that. He does that. He's, he's, he's patient with us. Is everybody grateful for God's patience? Is everybody grateful for God's patience? But he's patient with us. But I'm telling you, I told this guy, it's like, bro, it's not going to work out. Because you're asking the right questions and coming up with the worst answers. See, many of our misappropriations about God are rooted in our wrong impressions of God because a lot of us have just settled for the surface in our understanding of who God is. We think that God is just this cosmic cheerleader of ours, right? We're gonna pick our path and God's just up there as the all-powerful loving God that he is to cheer us on in whatever we decide. Sis, boom, ba, rah, 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 I am Yahweh, go, right? That's not how God is or who God is. But it's how some of us think. Some are like, I don't think that. Careful now. Because again, you might, on the test, answer correctly with the right theology, but in your actions, in your actual daily living, believe this all the way. God's just here for me. God's not just my cheerleader. He's my waiter. Can I take your order, please? Thank you for coming this morning to church. Welcome to Bay Life Church, Bay Life Buffet, whatever. Uh, what can I get you today? I'm God. Let me serve you. And some of you are like, Mark, that is sacrilege. That is anathema. That is exactly where all of us get at some point in life, where we think, hey, God, what you've given, that's not what I ordered. Can I talk to a manager, please? Let's go back to the kitchen and see what you got cooking back there because I asked for this and you delivered this. God's our waiter. He's not, but that's where we stop on the surface. Way too many people think God's our handyman. Hey, Lord, sorry. I broke it again. Took this life that you gave me and made a mess. Wow. Did not think that would happen when I turned this and twisted that. But here I am. I'm in a pickle. What do you say? I came back to church just for this. Can you fix whatever I've made a mess out of, please? And then he does, and this is what people do who have this surface understanding of God. They're like, thanks. I'll call you again when I need you. And they go off and do their life again until the next pickle. And they're like, Hey, Father, sorry, did it again. Oh, man, this one's a doozy. And people have these mindsets about who God is. Can I just, uh, first of all, let me assure you, God is all of those things. He is for us and not against us. Is anybody grateful for that? Yeah. Cheers us on, loves to see us. Um, experiencing his best for us in life. He loves that. Don't, 
I'm not saying he's not that. He is. God is our helper, our ever-present help in times of need. Does everybody agree with me on that? He loves to serve us. He loves to give us his grace. He does it in ways that we don't even notice on a regular basis. I'm not saying that he isn't our, our, our biggest cheerleader and our greatest servant. I'm not saying that he doesn't come into our messes and fix them when we need it. Is anybody grateful for that? That when we call on him, he is able and willing to step into the gap and make things that we've broken whole again? Is anybody grateful for that? I'm not preaching that he's not those things. I'm just telling you, he's way more. He's way more than just that. And if you've gone to church your whole life and been stopping at that, that surface, you know, uh, two-dimensional, uh, one idea of God kind of God, you've got to understand he's way beyond that. God is the only supreme being. He is the creator and sustainer of everything that exists. He alone is perfect in power and goodness and wisdom. He alone is executing an eternal plan, a sovereign eternal plan that includes the redemption of man from the curse of sin and death by the giving of his son, Jesus Christ. He, by his spirit, draws people like you and me to himself and to faith in Jesus. He, in his perfect love, disciplines us who are his children. He, in his perfect justice, one day will judge everybody who has ever existed. He is God. He is God. I am not. He is the point of everything that is. I am not. Since this is true, here's what he deserves. My attention, my devotion, my obedience, my worship, my all. He is ultimate, not me. I cannot manipulate him. I should not blame him, and I must never, ever dismiss him and ignore him in life. He is God, and I am not. Israel was unclear on who God was, and because they were unclear on who God was, because they saw the box as the key to their, to their victory and, and didn't understand that they needed to go below that surface level of understanding God and, and seeing his box as some kind of you know, lucky charm, some rabbit's foot, some lucky shirt that you wear when you hope your team wins. Go Bucks, right? He, none of that's true. None of that works. You can rearrange yourselves on the sofa as you're watching the game. It's going to have no effect on what happens on the field. Everybody gets that, right? No, we don't because we actually do that stuff. And Israel did it too. We need the box. Someone go get the box and then we'll win. They tried to use God, a God that they should have known. In verse 4, it says this, so the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts who's enthroned on the cherubim. Those are those angels on the top of the box. And, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. I mean, talk about some irony here. What they thought they were bringing was the true solution to their problem. If we bring the box, we'll win. What they were really bringing into the frame was the true problem. Their names were Hophni and Phinehas. They were the wicked leaders of the church of Israel, the, 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 the Judaism, the, the Jewish faith. And here they were. How ironic. What we think is a solution is really the showing of the problem. The two bozos carrying the box are why we're going to lose this war. And I'm out of time because that's how preaching happens. 
But can I just summarize what happens next? The box gets into the Israeli camp and everybody starts shouting, just like they did at Jericho, we're gonna win. You know, and, 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 and the Philistines hear it. And if you keep reading the story, the Philistines are like, whoa, what's going on over there? It sounds like their God, small g, has entered the camp. And we've heard about their God. The Philistines believed more <laughs> in the Israeli God than the Israelis did. We've heard about their God. He's the God who got them out of Egypt. He's the God who brought all the plagues on Egypt in the wilderness. We'll give them a break. The, the plagues didn't happen in the wilderness. They, they, but they, you know, they were fuzzy. This wasn't their faith. But they're like, we've heard about him. And God used their minuscule knowledge of who he was to embolden them. The Philistines turn to each other and they say, be brave. Be brave, brothers. We're up against it right now. We've got to fight like we've never fought before. Or we're going to lose this battle. And so they clash. In verses 8, 9, and 10, it tells us the result of this second battle. It was 10 times worse for Israel. Some of the first to die, Hophni and Phinehas, in completion of the prophecy that God had given, he was going to take those guys out. It got even worse than that, though. Not just the, the loss of life, but they lost the ark. Come back next week, we're going to talk about where it goes. We're going to do the box wars the tails of the box will unfold. But the Philistines capture the ark. It is abject, complete, total victory. And the Israelis are lost. You know, I pray all the time for the people who are kind of doing this with God, that God in his grace would gently lead them away from this and into this, right? I pray all the time for us as a church that God would, in his grace, gently guide. But if you've been there, testify, I have, every once in a while, God shakes the etch-a-sketch in such a way, cleans the clock in such a way that it's completely obvious. I'm done with you settling for the old. I want to do something new. And if I have to do it this way, I pray for the carrot, but sometimes he uses the stick, right? If I have to do it this way, I'm going to do whatever I have to do because I love you to get your attention so he can head in a different direction. So my final question, the first one, hey, what's old in your life that needs to go so that God can do the new? My last question is this. What are you thinking about this God that you're worshiping here today? Are you viewing him in a surfacey? less than true kind of way? Is he just your cheerleader, your waiter, your handyman? Or is he the God that everything is about, that you should be about, that all is built around in existence? It's only when we get to that point of full understanding and full submission that we can experience the life that he wants us to have. I pray that God leads us in knowing him. He's the very breath in our lungs. That's how he started the first man. He breathed into the dirt and Adam became. But he's all-encompassing. He's, he's everything. He's, he's all that we should be about in life. And my prayer for us as his church is that we deal with the old stuff so we can get to his new and that we'd understand who he is so that we can follow him the right way. Let's close as we sing.